this I'm telling you, I like I don't want to knock Space Force because thank you for your service. It's hard to talk about Space Force and not say Space Force and say things like Guardians of the Galaxy and say, and I hate that because one day there's going to be an intergalactic war and those guys are going to be the ones kicking in airlocks and shooting down stormtroopers. And we're all, we're all going to be sitting here like, man, we, we gave those guys a hard time. But we know that they'll be physically fit because they've solved the, the, the problem by just basing it all on the work. Hold on. <laughs> Don't use that sound bite. Oh, yeah. All right. Welcome back to Mobs and Moes. My name is Drew. I'm Alex. Alex, what are we talking about tonight? Hot topic today. Uh, you were right tonight. It's getting dark. We are talking about tech in human performance. Is it helpful? Is it necessary? What can it do for us? What can it not do for us? That whole conversation. Enjoy. So how do you, do you want to just ask? Do you want to just start? <laughs> I mean, that's what we've traditionally been doing is we're just kind of like mid banter and they're like, yeah, well, should we talk about stuff? Are we dropping brand names here? Because I think it's safe. We can, we can disclaimer it at the beginning. Should we, how about that's, that's a great way to start, right? <laughs> we are going to start by saying that we, we may or may not mention things by brand name or device name or whatever. And it should be clear that this is only our personal opinions and not the opinions of any organization that we are a part of or not a part of or any of that. And we are not endorsed by anyone. We're just providing information. Yeah, I think that covered. And even if we said we weren't going to say brand names, I'm pretty sure I would probably say something by accident. I said may or may not for a reason, right? We probably are. We probably are. <laughs> but we're covered now. Perfect. <laughs> okay. So, is is technology a necessary piece of a successful human performance program? No. All right. Episode's done. Tune in next that week. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Tune in next week when we talk about wearables. Um, no, I think. Uh, I, well, okay, I'll elaborate. Um, I have seen and have been guilty myself of falling victim to a lot of the, like we, usually when you get into wearable technology or technology in general, especially nowadays, you get wowed by like the visualization of it. So pretty graphs, pretty colors, pretty numbers, pretty pictures. And the claim for most of these devices and I, I say devices and wearables sort of interchangeably because typically any device you're going to look at is going to be on you to be wearable. Um, but they're essentially trying to boil down more often than not readiness into like one metric, one number, which is appealing. And I see, I see like the draw to that. And for the lay person, maybe it makes sense, but I have too often seen programs try to like, hang their hat on some make-believe proprietary number without really understanding what it means or really understanding whether or not it's even accurate. So I won't name drop this early in the episode, but like I know, for example, one quite common wearable gives you a readiness number score. I think, I think they call it a readiness score. To be clear, you haven't name dropped anyone, but everybody who deals with wearables already knows who you're talking about. Yeah, I know, but I have covered myself by not name dropping. <laughs> so there you go. So you get a readiness score. Um, and to be fair, it may have gotten more accurate, I hesitate to say, in the last few years. But when I was playing around with it some time ago, I mean, it's all based on your your wrist. So there's so much that goes into that becoming wildly inaccurate. For example, are you moving? Is your skin, is certain moisture content on your skin? Like what's the temperature outside, et cetera? Is the band the right fit? Like there's so much that can screw that up. 
and to boil all of it down into a single number, like what ends up happening, and we'll probably get into this, but what ends up happening is like the number drives the behavior as opposed to the other way around. And that is where it becomes dangerous because you'll have people come in to train one morning and they've already decided that they feel like ass because this make-believe score tells them that that's how they should feel. And then conversely, you have have people that will just ignore the number. And even if it is bad, they train excellently. And so it's like, well, is there any validity to that in the first place? I don't know. Well, we just got into placebo effect without necessarily intending to. And I think this is something I've like danced around in some mops and mo stuff before, but the, the placebo effect and like an individual's mindset and belief in an intervention is often stronger than the intervention itself. Like whether you're talking about like foam rolling or a certain supplement or even a drug, right? Like in a lot of cases, whether the patient believes it's going to work or whether the athlete believes it's going to work is more important than whether it works. And I think that's a, that's a huge piece of this. My, my overall framework I use is kind of like a, a Maslow's hierarchy of fitness needs and I, I, the very top of the pyramid, like the nice to haves, the bonus things after you worry about everything else includes like tech and wearables and devices and all the stuff like that. And I think they can be really relevant if you've got some of the other basics squared away. But if like a guy is entirely sedentary and you slap a Fitbit on him, he's not going to magically become not sedentary because you put a Fitbit on him. So you can, we need to talk about all sorts of foundational stuff before we get there. You're the first person you're you name drop before me i thought for oh. sure yeah that's fair yeah a product that rhymes with <laughs> but yeah i think like okay so i see this happen a lot in the endurance community where everything becomes data driven and you lose any sort of subjectivity to training like how you feel about it your perception going into it like all the other stuff you have going on in your life. It just, it becomes irrelevant because the numbers drive everything. And I think that there's a, there's like a time and a place for that from like a coaching standpoint. I think you need to become much more, well, you need to become much more objective driven as you get closer to whatever your, your performance is. Like if I have somebody that needs to run a 400 in a particular time or a particular pace, that pace is going to dictate a lot of the training closer to the event. And that's when I'll probably lean heavy, more heavily on tech type stuff, but further away when we're just kind of doing general training. And I think this is where most of the, of the tactical folks live most of the time. If you're not accounting for this, the subjective nature of training. And like you said, the placebo effect and all that squishy stuff that goes into training, if you don't account for that, or you think that you're accounting for that just by collecting one number off of somebody's wrist, like you're missing the mark tremendously in my opinion. It might be an unpopular opinion, but like don't show me a number from a wearable if you can't explain the physiology behind every single thing that's going into that number. Because if you can't, you're just taking that thing from the salesman. Good for you. Yeah, and if you're if you're kind of like, you kind of said it before, but if you're smashing a whole bunch of data into a black box that nobody really knows what algorithm is happening inside the black box and like, punching out a number to keep it simple for a consumer. There's, there's obviously a lot of questions there about what are you actually telling us and not to skip ahead, but I think this is like a key message that I think a lot of people that are already involved in human performance pretty much get, but that the people who make the decisions about how the money is spent like higher up on the totem pole don't necessarily quite get, which is that, like collecting data doesn't actually do anything, right? Data is only useful if it helps people make better decisions. And that means you have to be giving that data to someone who knows enough to make better decisions with it. And so we've got a lot of places where there are like no professionals to provide any context. Nobody's gotten the education on how to interpret the information. Or maybe there wasn't even an effort to do anything with the information. Maybe just like all went into a database and yay, we collected data. But that, that doesn't accomplish anything in terms of actual human performance outcomes or behavior changes or any of that. So if, if the data is not getting used, what was the point? I mean, people just say data all the time. Like, what is data? Like, what, 
oh, we got data. We have a database. It, data. We're tracking it. It's, I was in a meeting today talking about a tracker. Like, we just need a tracker for the data. We're pretty good at trackers around here. Like, what is, what do you do? What is the tracker with the data doing? What do you? What I used do you to, do? when I was like a lieutenant and a new captain, and I was trying to explain what my job was to like people not in the military. It took me a while to like come up with a good explanation of like what an army intel officer that's not in an intel unit does. And I, I mostly settled on, I turn red boxes on PowerPoint slides into yellow boxes and eventually into green boxes. It's pretty accurate. Yeah. It's pretty much most of the military. Really. It is. But it's all, it's, it's data driven. Well, so that, I mean, so we've slipped into a slightly different talking point, which is data. So in human performance, you see this a lot specifically, I can speak to strength coaches. I don't know if it's as prevalent in PT, AT circles. It might be, but you end up with two camps. You get the data-driven folks and then you get the screw all that. I'm old school. Like we're just going to lift. And it's almost like you can't very seldom do people straddle the line. And I, I mean, to be fair, I think straddling the line is probably the right way to do it. Um, but it's like you, you get this militant camp of professionals who will not make a decision unless there's like legitimately data behind it. Like, Oh, I'm doing, you know, this knee flexion exercise because this paper produced this result and this, you know, percentage of change over this blah, blah, blah. blah. So that exercise is going to go here. And then this, 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 and then the other guys are like, I'm not even going to write the workout down. We're just going to go by feel. I don't even know how to turn on a computer. Like that's a bragging point. Um, I've worked with people like that, but it's interesting how the, the field of strength and conditioning human performance is just sort of like divided on this line of super data or no data. I don't know what that really says, but I keep running into that where they're either very intimidated by science and technology or they hide behind it because they spend all their time sort of collecting it and making decisions based off of it, which probably gets to what you were talking about with, does it all need to be objective? Is there room for subjectivity? Where does that exist? How do you fit that into a program? Because that I think is a huge piece with a lot of this wearable technology conversation too. And I think that sets us up well for the rest of the conversation where we can go through some slightly more specific examples of like where tech is useful and where it's not, but I'm going to, I'm going to take a risk here. I don't know how this will go, but we're, we're talking around some concepts that come from one of your favorite authors. And I don't know if you want a chance to talk about some like John Keeley, whether it's like, subjective or objective and how we like adjust training to the athlete and give me a pedestal to just stand on and rant for the next two hours yes so essentially if no one has read john carly first of all you're missing out second Sorry, all, i mispronounced it that was my Kylie, it's okay kylie keely we'll get him on the podcast one of these days um john kylie so series of papers mostly on his he's most popular for his periodization critiques but through all of that, there's this common thread, especially his paper where he talks about stress. There's this common thread of decision-making based off of the subjective experience of the athlete. And really what he gets at is, and I'll try to like, I'll try to simplify it a little bit because his explanations are pretty high level, but the, the decisions that we make as, as coaches, as providers, as professionals, are all caged within this kind of, we'll call it like a Soviet traditional paradigm of like essentially mechanistic adaptation. So if I do A, I will get B every time regardless. If, so whatever the prescription is, whatever the you know stimulus, the adaptation is, we expect a particular adaptation, it will happen every time to infinity. And if you really think about it, a lot of, like, if you do a self critique of this industry, you'll realize that a lot of the stuff that we base our very fundamental decisions off of comes from that 
state of mind, the idea that the human body is basically a robot and I can predict adaptation. And it, the more information I have from this athlete, the more objective information I have from this athlete, the more informed my, my process is going to be and the more accurate my prediction is going to be. So, you know, it, it gets a little bit into the wearables where it's like, if I, if I just collect more information, my magical ball will give me better results down the road, basically. And that really gets to the why behind I would, why I would invest in wearables in the first place is to become more informed in my decision-making. However, key piece, getting back into what Kylie writes about, there's this entire subjective experience of the athlete that we have to take into consideration and no single wearable, no piece of technology is really able to capture that. And it scares a lot of people because they get a little fearful of subjective stuff because it's always squishy like you have to talk to your athlete you have to extract information you have to piece together things that may not on the surface make much sense for example how does how they felt last night after a fight with their spouse contribute to their perception of the back squat that you just assigned to them and if that for some reason makes them squat less than it did last week what does that do so your, your programming or your prescription in the weeks to come. And so without, without taking into account athlete experience and creating a system that allows for you to receive that information, act on that information, and then feed forward that information into the decision-making process, you're basically leaving, I mean, I would just make a guess here, but you're leaving like 60 to 70% of the whole training effect just completely off the table. Um, I think that gets after something and I'm borrowing this from like specifically Nate Palin and Vern Griffith and the stuff they're putting out, but, uh, they, they talk about like tactical athlete recovery and there's, there's been some messaging about like overtraining and overuse injuries and things like that. And I think the vast majority of the tactical athlete populations, and this is like borderline quoting Nate word for word here, but it's not their training that they need to recover from the bulk of their stress is coming from outside of the training, right? Or at least outside of the physical component of the training, whatever else their job entails, you don't know, but there's, there's almost certainly more stress if we're talking and like, this will be offensive to the, the stuff you just said, but if we're talking general adaptation model and like treating all stress is the same, which we know it's not, but there's, there's a lot more stress coming from the other 23 hours of the day than the one hour you spent in the gym. So if you think that like, that's the stress that's driving your adaptation or lack thereof, you're probably wrong. Like there's probably stressors that you're failing to account for that like heart rate variability might not account for either that are affecting your ability to adapt and perform. Well, it's like, and not to get like super heady into Kylie stuff, but there's an important point there talking about general adaptation syndrome, not to knock it. Cause I know the first thing, oh, you're just going to knock it. But it gets, it gets back to the subjective piece. And to your point, the other 23 hours of the day, if you read Cellier's work, and if you read not only his original work, but like the follow-on work where he kind of, because I don't think people realize he was alive when the human performance strength and conditioning industry started like taking his stuff and saying it's a thing. And he, in a sense, sort of pushed back on it a little bit being like, hold on that was not the intent of the thing. I don't think any strength coach paid attention to that, but what he will tell you or what he, what he did when he was alive would say, it was like, he was never able to determine like the initial, what triggered the cascade of, of the follow on stress. Like that was never something he was able to figure out. And so in order to fill that gap, we have always told ourselves that it's purely biological. Like that's what, Hans Selye's model is it's a purely biological yep. model of stress. What Kylie speaks to, and really honestly, what psychology and this biopsychosocial model speaks to, is the idea that the athlete's perception of the upcoming stress is what triggers the you know general adaptation, quote unquote, curve, blah 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 blah, all the stuff we're familiar with, which doesn't seem like a huge deal, but when you really think about it, like that's a game changer. So to your point, the other 23 hours, all of that feeds into the athlete experience. So when they walk in the room, if they're, you know, haven't slept much, haven't eat, you know, haven't ate the right foods, 
don't feel great about the workout. Maybe it's a, a lifting workout and they're a runner or vice versa or whatever. All of that is going to dictate before they even get under the bar, how their body is physiologically going to react to the stress. And so like not to get super far away from wearable technology, but if all you are doing is strapping a device on somebody to try to capture a metric thinking from that, you know, robot mindset, like if I get this data, I'm going to get this outcome. Then again, you're just completely missing out on what's actually taking place when they're doing a training session. I dig it. Since you said we're drifting away and we're continuing to drift away from the, the technology thing. Time. It's my it own does. Time. But we're going we're gonna to reel it back in for a second and I'm going to throw out, this is a hard pivot, but I'm going to throw out an example of a role that technology can play that's beneficial and it's like kind of particular to the tactical environment. Um, a lot of tactical organizations have body composition standards right? Whether it's to join or to stay in or whatever, there's some kind of body composition, like minimum BMI, maximum BMI or whatever assessment they use. Cause BMI is not the most accurate thing ever for an individual. Um, but a lot of that was based on research conducted like 30, 40, 50 years ago. Um, almost all that research was conducted on like largely college age white males. Cause they're the most accessible demographic. If you were on a college campus 50 years ago, you could just walk outside and grab a bunch of them and pay them $10 to do your little assessment and you're good. So we know that we know that there are some demographic gaps in our, in our body composition information. And now all of a sudden we're seeing a proliferation of like devices and technology platforms that can measure body composition in a, arguably more accurate way than some of our tools, right? Whether you're talking about like air displacement stuff or bioelectrical impedance stuff, or like there are a variety of models, DEXA scans. It's a tool that we can use to like kind of update, whether it's for individual assessment or just like updating our understanding of body composition and its relationship to performance. That's a pretty useful, I think, application of technology in the human performance space. Well, I think it gets into as well, what we talked about before we I think before we press record, but you, you've got wearable tech. I still have a name drop, which I'm pretty proud of, but you've got wearable tech, which more often than not, well, I'll categorize it like this. You've got wearable tech that is trying to sell you something that you, they think you should be concerned about. So for example, recovery score and or sleep and or you know, step count or whatever, like their whole sales pitch is based around this metric. And that metric is like the key to success. But then you've got a whole different camp of wearable technology that is meant to, I guess you could say, passively show you what's already there, if that makes sense. And I'm thinking specifically of like, you know, I'll name drop here, like Garmin. So giving you pace, like pace is a metric that already exists. This is just putting it in a framework that allows you to act on it versus a different device that's making up a recovery score and telling you you're red, yellow, or green because of our algorithm. So I think there's a, there's a difference there where you can, you can be very data heavy from a performance standpoint, using stuff to monitor what's already there. Moxie is another good example where I'm just capturing physiology that's already happening. There's nothing made up about that. Like this is objectively what's going on at you know at the level of the muscle and so by using that information i can create a better picture of what's happening and then i can program off of that or make decisions off of that etc cetera, etc cetera. i think the body comp stuff is similar depending on sort of the clinical accuracy of it but in that case you can sort of objectively determine if something's accurate or not because they do those types of tests and they say this one is going to give you a better reading than that one blah blah blah, blah, blah. um i don't know where i'm going with that but i think you, you got to be careful with your analysis, you being like a coach or a provider of just technology in general and saying yes or no, sort of dichotomously. I think it's depending on the application, there may be something there that is incredibly helpful. But flip side of that is there may be something there that's just a massive waste of money and isn't really adding anything to your practice. Also, since none of that had anything to do with body composition technically but i get where you were going with it in terms of like body I, composition is like, I said body comp at one point. you did you did but since body composition is like a thing that already exists and we're not trying to like score it or like modify mm. it somehow you're just trying to like tell us the way it is 
I, I get where you went with that. I will offer, this is specific to our, our military audience or people who work with military specifically, but the, the DOD did just release, like literally a week ago, release a new policy on body composition and fitness assessments. People in the individual services might not realize that like the actual army, the actual air force, the Navy don't have as much control over their body composition policies and their fitness testing policies as it might seem like they do. A lot of it's dictated by the Pentagon directly, but the, the new instruction 1308.3 like went into effect on the 10th and it does open the door to a few really interesting things. Uh, one being it allows the services to set a benchmark where if soldiers perform highly enough on physical fitness tests, they don't have to be measured for body composition at all. Um, it also doesn't explicitly say this, but like depending on how you read it, it opens the door to analyzing body composition using some of these tech enabled approaches, like, and this is name dropping, but like bod pods or in bodies and things like that, that those tools might be acceptable depending on how you read the new policy. So I think that's going to be a really interesting thing that in the coming months and like year or two as the different services digest it. Um, Mops and Mo's post coming soon explaining what's going on with 13.3 so people don't have to actually download and read DOD policy. But yeah, brought to you first by Mops and Mo's. Check it out. Breaking news. A Mops and Mo's exclusive. I so I actually like that. I mean not to make this an ABCB or, or a body composition episode, but I, I am a fan of the idea that if you can pass whatever the test is, the body composition is sort of irrelevant. If the test is good enough. If the, well, yeah. So it becomes a circular thing of like, is the test good enough? Did you pass it? it you know, yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. The hard thing I have, the hard, I have a hard time when, and this, uh, you, you know the policy better than I do, but I saw this happen previously with um, athlete management systems, which is not wearable technology, but it's, it still sort of falls into the technology bucket where we, we make decisions based off of whatever is the industry standard at the time being, which can get into a conversation about really science being a product of what we can measure at any given time. And so as soon as you indoctrinate a particular best practice, you close the door to any kind of future change. And the best tech rarely wins the business battle, right? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, again, getting into like athlete management systems or wearables or whatever, like if we said today, you know, um, well, we'll use InBody as an example. And I'm making this up. This is not a knock against InBody. They're a sponsor of the show. They're not a sponsor of the show, but maybe one day. Um, Call us InBody. Yeah, call us InBody. Um, but for example, if we decided, okay, InBody is, is the industry standard, it does, it measures X, Y, and Z and gives you this. And then 20 years of research later, come to find out, oh, like biological impedance, turns out it's based on completely false science. You know, water doesn't have anything to do with body mass. Again, I'm making this up, but it paints a picture we then have to go back 20 years later and be like, well, crap, all that was basically BS. And I've seen that happen. I mean, we, we joke about like lactic acid and lactate all the time, but like, that's literally exactly what happened in that example is that the technology at the time captured a thing. And then that thing dictated generations and decades of thinking come to find out, Oh wait, that thing only existed because we were measuring dead frog legs and we couldn't measure anything else. Once we're able to measure at a much more minuscule level, because of new technology, that's now changed our whole paradigm. Whoops. It turns out the whole thing literally didn't exist. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Oh, shit. Um, so yeah, again, it kind of gets into this idea of like tech wearables and decision-making never like policymaking never really go well together because policymaking never happens fast enough to keep up with tech. Yeah. I dig it. We're going to do another hard pivot because we just we just dropped our sponsored section. We'll see. But I think there there is a piece because you just said policy can't keep up with tech. And I think that's true even at the like. That might get me in trouble. No, I mean, I keep going. I'm saying me, policy can't keep up with tech. I'm sure somebody in some policymaking department is going to get mad at me for saying that. I mean, I think it's real because 
we like we've every service component has established some kind of innovation hub to try and fix that problem right like why do, why does AffWorks exist like why do all of these why are, is every service spending a bunch of money on it it's because they realize that we don't innovate that fast like big ships turn slowly we're trying to keep up but i think it it also affects us at the like lower echelon but like whatever the echelon is where like the senior commander gets to decide how money is spent and things like that and i think there is room for a conversation about technology being able to sell a program or like convince people whatever you want to call it like get people to believe in the program i think like one thing that one thing that data does for better or for worse is it creates pretty charts that you can show to commanders and sometimes that saves your whole program. Like sometimes commanders will fund a program because it, they can brief and sell what they're doing and like chart the change that's happening based on the data. And like, is that necessarily changing anything? I don't know. It's definitely changing the budget of the program. And that allows you to continue doing the things you know work, even if it's not the technology stuff, right? The technology got you in the door. It helped to sell the program. It helped to justify the budget, things like that. And that might be just as valuable as whether or not it like actually reduces injuries or improves performance or whatever you're looking for. Well, that, I mean, I'll, I will now name drop whoop because um, I, so this, I think this was in like 2014 or 15, but anyway, I was trying to, as a, as a strength coach operating by myself in a squadron of guys that were very bad at telling me how they felt each day like how ready they were quote unquote i was looking for a solution to try to capture readiness little did i know that this would be like the conversation du jour you know fast forward 10 years but so anyway whoop comes across my instagram i remember it distinctively i was in at thanksgiving in orlando florida and i see this readiness score on Instagram, I'm like, holy crap, like, this is the thing. This is it. And so I actually reached out to them early. This is like Whoop 1.0, early days. Before the subscription model. Before, way before. This was back when you, one of the questions that you, your athletes would answer was whether or not they had sex the night before. That question no longer exists. Don't go looking for it. But at the time, the tech was very new and they were doing, you know, in my opinion, they were doing a really good job of trying to capture a lot of stuff. So anyway buy this device i got i convinced my squadron to buy i don't remember how many of them but it was it was at least to my knowledge the first time in that neck of the special warfare world that people were investing in wearables we were like the first people to have wearables and so obviously it creates all this buzz like oh my god what's blue what are you collecting come to find out this stuff is not i mean what they're doing is great but the data itself is not incredibly accurate however what I did notice was behavior change. Happened. Oh yeah. We've seen this in the army too. Right. And so the way that I briefed it to commanders, and I remember this distinctively, it, it changed from, Hey, sir, we're capturing HRV. We're capturing readiness. Like we're all this objective stuff. It switched to you're not investing in accuracy. You're investing in behavior change. So if you, and I would hear these conversations, guys would be talking in the hall, like, Oh, I slept more than you last night. Like, ha 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 ha. Like if you, that's exactly to- what we saw. We, yeah. I don't, I wasn't involved in any studies directly or anything, but you started to hear stories because whoop did a big study out in Alaska that like originally was supposed to be about like measuring the physiological impact of airborne operations in an Arctic environment. Right what it ended up being is soldiers in the barracks competing to see who could sleep more. Yeah, exactly. Cause there's a sleep leaderboard. <laughs> yeah. But I don't think, I mean, granted, I've never worked for one of these companies, so I could be totally off the mark here. I don't think any of them have deliberately gone after that angle. Like I've never been approached as like a sort of low level decision maker. I've never been approached by these types of companies and I'm, I'm including not just whoop in this, all of them from this angle of like, Hey man, that is bullshit. It doesn't matter. What really matters is guys are going to compete to sleep more. Like none I of I think there's a piece of it. They they must be somewhat deliberately doing it because like now all these devices are social media enabled or whatever, right? Or at least there's like a you network on the app. Yeah. So you can like you can connect with your friends if you use Garmin and see how many steps they took and like compete in weekly step challenges and 
like my, my Garmin will remind me if I go for 30 minutes without taking a certain number of steps, it'll tell me to get up and go take a walk and I'll tell it to shut up. Cause I'm going to, I remember my Wii, my Nintendo Wii used to do that, but it was like, you've been playing for a really long time. Are you sure you don't want to go outside? Yeah. yeah. I don't want to go outside. So somebody on the inside knows that there's like a behavior change component of this. Like they're clearly aware of it. So well, that became the talking point. It was like, do you invest, you know, let's call it, uh, you know, $500 per guy. Do you invest that in trying to chase a single number that like encompasses performance? Or do you say $500 per guy to see a spike in sleep because it becomes competitive? I think that's pretty much worth it. So we don't even like, I mean, there were, I didn't even monitor the data anymore at that point. Cause I knew that just by virtue of people having it on their wrist, they were going to make positive behavior change. And you see that in gen pop too. Like people will buy, I mean, you already used Fitbit, but people will buy a Fitbit. And then all of a sudden, because they have that, they feel more like an athlete, quote unquote. And then they're more inclined to make positive decisions. Who cares what the data says? This was a journey I went on. This is not very high tech. It's pretty low tech. But when I was, when I was teaching stuff at the physical fitness school, people would ask about, waist wraps right and waist wraps like claim to make you lose fat around your belly vibrating the vibrating there's some that do all sorts of stuff but most of these just like induce sweating locally it's literally just a wrap you put around your belly Um, and like they can come after me if they want to but one particular brand is called it works and that's a pretty big red flag (laughs) like if the if the name of the thing is it works you should start asking questions but Spoiler alert, it doesn't work. I, I went on a little bit of a journey with it though, because right, like everything in that category, the way it's advertised includes the same sentence where it says, in combination with diet and exercise, mm. results in fat loss, muscle gain, whatever the thing is. And like basically everybody who's read anything at this point understands that it's not the device that's doing anything, it's the diet and exercise that it's in combination with that's doing something. Like we know you cannot spot reduce fat, right? Like nothing you wrap, no thing you wear, whatever. It's not going to change where the fat comes off, where fat gets stored and where it comes off is largely genetically determined, whatever. But where I started to come around on it was like, let's hypothetically say the wrap costs 30 bucks. I don't know what it costs. You buy the $30 wrap and now you like go to the gym because you got to get the most out of the wrap. And you get back from the gym and you're a little bit more mindful about your dinner because you're doing this whole wrap thing and you want to make sure you get the most out of it, right? And then like the next day you you go for a walk wearing your wrap because you think it'll do more if you're walking while you wear it. And all of a sudden you start losing fat, right? Is it the wrap that did anything? Well, if it changed your behavior, maybe the wrap did work. Like Maybe that was a good $30 investment. I don't know. Could you have convinced yourself to do all those things without a wrap? You could have but we're humans and humans are irrational. And sometimes when you buy things, you change the way you do things. I'm just picturing a fat Alex walking down the street <laughs> in DC with like a wrap around your stomach, losing weight. Coming soon to a sidewalk near you. <laughs> no, but it's true. I think, I mean, really to get back to the core of this podcast that we keep kind of going off on tangents, which is pretty common. Um, like, if if wearables and i'm talking to like i guess i'm talking to athletes and and providers here but like if wearables is a, is a rabbit hole you want to go down because you think it's going to solve some problem in your organization and it might just be cognizant of the fact that the biggest bang for your buck is not necessarily going to come from the proprietary algorithm or number that the wearable is proposing to give to you it's going to come from the behavior change that's kickstarted by virtue of having the thing so if that, I mean, weigh that kind of decision. And if that's something that is worthwhile, then by all means go for it. Because to your point, sometimes sometimes a guy or a girl will not change behavior at all. And then they buy some stupid thing. And now all of a sudden they're doing the stuff you've been telling them to do for like the last five years. Like anybody who's been in this industry for any length of time will have seen that happen. Like it plays out literally all the time. Like, hey, you should... Um, you know, I don't know, whatever, you should run more. Oh, I hate running, blah, 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 blah. And then like their best buddy buys a particular pair of shoes. They buy the same pair of shoes. Now all of a sudden they're running more because I got these new shoes and like now they're a runner. So I mean, that's probably a bad example, but still the point holds of like, don't chase a particular metric that you think is going to unveil some secret because 
again, science is a product of what we can measure. So by virtue of measuring it, it means that there's a whole dearth of information that we don't know because we haven't, like science is ongoing. But you can elicit behavior change. And if that's something that's worth the investment, then go for it. I think this all kind of leads into something that we can possibly wrap the episode up with. We'll see if any more tangents emerge. But I think we both saw the headlines, but neither of us know any kind of detail on this yet. So this is mostly a hypothetical conversation. But the uh, the newest members of the tactical community are Space Force Guardians. Space Force. They appear to be going down the road of to the moon. establishing fitness and wellness standards that are wearable driven rather than like physical fitness assessment driven. And we don't know if this will work yet. We don't know what the policy is. We don't know what wearables and what numbers and what metrics or any of that stuff yet. But it's certainly an interesting conversation about like opening the door to a totally different paradigm of how we track tactical professionals and how we assess their fitness and wellness. I think, I mean, I'm a fan of the idea. The only caveat or the only point that I think is, is going to be tough is if you attach you say you're going to base it off wearable, then the next conversation is, okay, well, which wearable? And if you can't, because of the way contracting works, you can't specify a brand, you then have to specify a feature set. And okay, that's fine. So we specify a feature set, but then what happens if back to kind of the science discussion, like 10, 15, 20 years down the road, we've decided that an entirely different collection of features and data points is what actually informs you know, optimal performance, quote unquote, well, then do you put yourself in a situation where you now have to change your, your policy? So like the, the idea of it is awesome. I think you could totally do away with PT tests in, in their entirety, if you're able to capture good health and fitness objectively and subjectively through other metrics, it's just hard to, it's hard to do that because it's, it's changing all the time. I think there's a more foundational problem Maybe space forces in a gravitational, I don't know. I think that's exactly the problem, right? I don't think pedometers work in zero gravity. I don't. So that we got to throw that one out. Yeah. Step count's gone. Well, how is you floating? If you're floating. Exactly. I don't know. Is there, you know what? That's interesting. Maybe there's paper on that HRV and a zero gravity environment. Do we think, I mean, presumably NASA is doing wearable device monitoring of astronauts. Space Force hopefully is involved so they can inform how our guardians prepare themselves to fight aliens on the moon. This, I'm telling you, I, like, I don't want to knock Space Force because thank you for your service. It's hard to talk about Space Force and not say Space Force and say things like Guardians of the Galaxy and say, and I hate that because one day there's going to be an intergalactic war and those guys are going to be the ones kicking in airlocks and shooting down stormtroopers and we're all we're all going to be sitting here like man we we gave those guys a hard time but we know that they'll be physically fit because they've solved the the, the problem by just basing it all off of wearables true i don't know if that was a tangent or if we just roast the space force by accident because you brought them up We'll see. I don't know. We'll, we'll even the score when they get back to Earth after the battle and their bone, de- their bone density is completely gone because there was no gravity for them to build up bone density and they just crumple in a fight and it's over. Do you want we, so we, I guess we can edit this part out of the podcast if we hate it, but do you, can you think of a wearable that you think is worth investing in? Oh. So well, I think we did skip something because there's there's more to tech than wearables, right? And there are some non-wearable devices that are worth discussion, like things that track bar speed. Oh, that's, yeah, that's true. That's true. Things that track landing mechanics and stuff. But if we're if we're limited to wearables, I think there's I think there's a solid amount of value in terms of how coaches can program if their athletes have access to heart rate and pace data. So I think devices that give you that are useful just in terms of, I can prescribe you a workout now based on those things that you could not have done without that information. Yeah, that kind of was a dead end conversation because I'd say the same thing. I mean, I would, if I were 
by myself on an island with a thousand dollars and somehow I had access to Amazon and the only thing I could buy was wearables. I would get a chest, a chest in bold, underlined, highlighted chest based heart rate monitor or heart, heart rate strap and a Garmin or a, a watch of some sort that it pairs with. And that's probably as far as I would go. Oh, dope. Right before this podcast, I went running wearing a, a chest strap heart rate monitor connected to a Garmin watch. See, there you go. So, I mean, probably a different episode at some point with like a physiologist, but if you're basing your heart rate stuff off of your wrist, you're just, you're wrong. Um, I will say this is worth discussing because I did spend some time reading about this like a year ago. I think a lot of people formed opinions on the accuracy of wrist-based heart rate monitoring roughly four or five years ago. And it was junk at that point, like not very valid, all that stuff. Some of the more modern devices have gotten significantly better. Still not amazing, but enough better that it's not necessarily always worth throwing out if the device is pretty up to date. No, that's true. But what I would say to that is the ones that are capable of doing that with any level of accuracy are at such a high price point that you're probably better off buying a much more, a much less expensive F-based heart rate strap. Yeah, it's very true because the heart rate straps are not that expensive and they're probably more accurate than even the really expensive wrist-based devices. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they connect to basically any wrist-based device regardless of brand and it's super easy. I do know, I don't know if it's still true, but a couple of years ago, AFSOC was giving out Garmin tactics watches to everybody who joined the command. Yeah, I have one. I'm not yeah. wearing it, but yeah, was, that's pretty wild. I was part of that. Those are expensive. They're lovely. I think it's great. And they can like they can be an altimeter if you're skydiving and you can like set waypoints for land navigation. It's ridiculous how much those watches are capable of. Yeah, and I'll be completely honest with you, I've used it for pace and swimming. Yep. I will, I remember being very upset. I was, I was a Lieutenant when like those came out and they were super cool. And I remember like talking to the guys I was with in the field during some field exercise about whether I should buy one. And I finally convinced myself there's like way too much money for the capability it offered. And it just kind of didn't make sense. And that was fine. Fast forward until we're out of the field and it's like morning PT the next week or whatever. And I see the brigade commander bragging about his new Garmin tactics and how cool it is. I'm like, ah. I could have had one. Well, what I will say, so we, I mean, we just talked about buying watches and heart rate straps. When I am working with guys training for selection events, I will intentionally tell them to take that off at some point because you do have to develop a subjective sense of pace and, you know, speed, pace, direction, blah, blah, blah. Because when you're going through a lot of those types of events, you're not allowed to have any of that. And so again, back to kind of the earlier comments on the endurance community, if you are so tied into your data to where you aren't able to make decisions without it, then you're probably at a loss as well, kind of on the other end of the spectrum. So like, if you're going to invest in wearables, I think, like we said, heart rate based strap is good. Um, You know, a, a standard GPS Bluetooth watch is good, but you should also take some time to calibrate your own internal I was going to say your own internal wearable, but that doesn't even make sense. You know what I mean? I do think I'll throw out some other categories of things that aren't traditionally, well, two of them are definitely not wearables. One's kind of wearable, but we wouldn't think of it that way. Um, Music actually is like pretty evidence-based in terms of its ability to improve performance. Um, So I know like headphones are not traditionally considered like technology or whatever, but I think like a decent pair of headphones that you like wearing that like aren't giant, beats or whatever that get in the way of working out like something you can wear while you work out that doesn't get in the way yeah i think there's i think there's value there and then these next two are extremely low tech but they're much lower on like the hierarchy of fitness needs pyramid like a lunchbox and a water bottle um like a lunchbox that allows you to bring food that's like actually food and a water bottle that allows you to transport just water that's not a bang energy drink i know that's not technology but like let's get real about the things that make a difference in people's actual fitness levels we may have to change the title of this episode if it's going to be about wearables and you just referenced lunch boxes and water bottles. But like it's things you can go buy. But does your, your lunchbox your lunch give you a readiness score? No, it does not. Well, I mean, they might be coming soon. Because what I would envision is a lunchbox with a handle that has the same technology that every YMCA slash hotel treadmill has, where if you hold the two silver pieces, it gives you your heart rate. Might be honest, something there. 
Well, there's, I know I've heard this a bunch of times in the last two years, but there's a huge desire for a device that like without the athlete's input can monitor their nutrition in some way. Of course. Like it would be beautiful if that existed because the biggest problem with nutrition monitoring is that it requires a heinous amount of data entry. Dude, I've been in meetings with smart people, bless their heart, who have tried to come up with a solution where a camera takes a picture of your tray and then determines the calorimetry of your food and then puts that into a thing. Based you watched the app. You watched Silicon Valley, the TV show? No, did they do that? So one of the characters invents a, a piece of software that can like, it's supposed to identify like what a thing is. Like it's supposed to be like optical image recognition or whatever. Um, the, the joke that plays out is all he was able to train it to do is tell you whether something is a hot dog or is not a hot dog. <laughs> it was to be like, I mean, like that's, there's a lot of accuracy to that. I think. Yeah. So it turned out to be great because it ended up being like a security thing where it could like prevent dick pics from getting to people. Cause it, it's the exact same technology as telling whether it's a hot dog or not. <laughs> <laughs> but Yes, if we could have a device that could like optically sense food and assess the calorimetry of hey, it. Technology and nutrition, we need to get, we need to do a dietitian again because there's probably like not even to go down the rabbit hole of calories and all that sort of thing, but like just saying something's a chicken breast and thinking that you know from that how many calories are in it is asinine. Almost like referencing a lunchbox in a water bottle. <laughs> in a discussion about wearable technology hey they make a bigger difference and like zipper is a patented piece of technology zipper yeah the zipper on a lunchbox that doesn't make it wearable no but still technology you're the one who turned this into a wearable episode we haven't even talked about force plates oh my god was that on the agenda to talk about force plates i, I didn't put it on my agenda but it's technology and those Jeez. sure are let's just nip that in the bud right now don't buy a force plate <laughs> I think force plates have benefited from some excellent marketing in the last few years. Um, people think force plates are new. They're not that new. They've been used in labs for a pretty long time because they're- Force plates are great. I, mean, I don't want to throw shade on force plates too much, but they're good if like, so if you hurt one of your legs and there's a discrepancy in force production left to right, an asymmetry, if you will then it's cool to have something like that to show your provider or you that like you're trending back in the right direction. Like that's cool because that's based off of your own metrics. Assuming you did a pre-injury baseline and you know, blah, 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 fine, fine, use it. But if you're gonna tell me, I don't mean to rant, but if you're gonna tell me that I'm gonna cycle a bunch of people through a thing and they're gonna jump and that jump is gonna give me some indication of whatever, cool. You can also just ask the guy, or you could program in such a way that you capture his readiness, heaven forbid. So anyway, that's one of those things where it's like the, the juice is not worth the squeeze. In my opinion, maybe someone's going to bash me for that. That's fine. Whatever. Um, there are cheaper and more objective ways of capturing the same thing. Done. Well, I also think there's, there's an innate desire. This happens to individuals and it happens to large organizations with big budgets but there's a desire to buy something that'll accomplish what you want rather than actually do something to accomplish what you want. And I think force plates are a great example of just collecting data for data's sake sometimes. Because if you don't have a plan for how you're going to implement it and what it's going to feed and what decisions are going to happen based on it, then you're just collecting information. It's not going to do something, right? And I think there's a lot, it's, those are pretty high on the hierarchy, right? Like there might be places where it's super relevant. Like you said, like if you have a baseline and you want to track symmetry or asymmetry for return to duty after an injury, whatever it is, it, it might have some relevant application in that place. But it, like many other pieces of technology is being marketed as some, some type of like cure-all device that will like solve injuries. No, there's two points. First one, I think you sort of nailed the whole conversation on the head by saying, if you're not going to do something with the information you're collecting, you're just collecting information. And that I think is, I don't want to say all programs, most programs fall victim to that because it is very, very easy to spend money and buy stuff. 
Like no one is going to debate that. If someone comes to me and wants to sell me a million force plates and I have somebody somewhere that is inspired by that idea, it's very easy to do that. I will buy a million force plates. If I don't take that data and action it, then I haven't made any measurable change in my program and the investment was a waste. So that's sort of the first point. The second point, and I can't believe we got this far talking about data without mentioning Goodhart's law, which is as soon as you, as soon as you, to sum it up, essentially, as soon as you start to measure something, it becomes meaningless. And a good way to explain that in the context of like a force plate or any other device. Like- I'll interrupt for a second before you finish. I think, yes, but like the, the idea of good hearts is that when the thing you're measuring becomes the goal, that's yes, it, that's it stops way. measuring the thing you thought it was measuring. And like the easiest example I use for people all the time is that you'll find some good research that like push-ups are predictive of all cause mortality, which is true if you grab a random person off the street and see how many push-ups they can do, you're probably gonna get a pretty good picture of like how much they exercise overall, strength to weight ratio, body composition, all those things. But all that goes out the window if the person practices push-ups all the time. Now you're no longer assessing all of those things. You're just assessing how much if they practice push-ups. Well, you summed it up beautifully because I was going to use it in the context of a force plate. And I see this happen where you have someone will display an asymmetry. So maybe right leg is stronger than left leg or whatever. And all of a sudden, because you decided that's your metric, you know, balance, quote unquote, you drive that left leg so hard and try to match those numbers and create, you know, symmetry on both sides. You've just completely ignored literally every single other thing that could have one either contributed to that or a conversation around maybe the asymmetry is beneficial to whatever they're actually doing yeah a a classic example of this is like gait analysis and people will say that there's some ideal gait or some ideal movement that you like running needs to look a certain way and to somehow prove their point they will show like Usain Bolt and how he is he has poor gait because it doesn't match the thing that we think it should but how many gold medals do you have sir like that comes up all the time in performance where it's like if we decide that we want to measure and make things fit a certain thing it becomes meaningless to your point and it's a huge problem in research like if if the subject of the research knows they're in the control group or, or knows they have been given an intervention that they believe will work, it completely ruins the validity of the research because now you've introduced a whole ton of placebo or nocebo kind of effect. Right. And you see that, I mean, again, to come back to technology, you see that with wearable devices in a sense where people just, it becomes a game and you want to win the game. And sometimes that's a good thing, like we talked about with sleep, but then sometimes that can, there's negative side effects to that too. Yeah, I did run into that even myself. Um, I, I got briefly obsessed with lowering my resting heart rate and like, there's a difference between like ways to adjust a number acutely and ways to adjust a number chronically, like consistent endurance training will definitely help you lower your resting heart rate over a long period of time. But if you want a lower resting heart rate tomorrow, than you have today in my personal experience, the best way to achieve that is to be as sedentary as possible. Yeah. Sit still. Yeah. Do nothing. Exactly. But that is not, it's not accomplishing the whole goal of the thing, right? Like resting heart rate is supposed to be predictive of like aerobic capacity and like level of fitness and stuff. But if you start chasing resting heart rate by not moving at all, you've kind of undermined the whole idea. Well, the flip side of that, and I see this a lot with guys that I do any sort of heart rate based training with where, you know, like zone two, you'll give them stay between, I don't know, 140 and 160 or whatever. And what I have noticed happens, and this happens to me too, is by watching that number as you're moving, (laughs) you create enough anxiety around (laughs) staying in a particular zone that it actually goes up because you're sitting there either not breathing as much as you think you should. And I'm looking at my make-believe watch on my wrist right now, not breathing as much as you think you should. You change your gait, you're just become, you know, stressed out that the number is too high or whatever, and it starts to climb. And so it, it presents a problem sort of in the opposite sense of being sedentary is like creating a ton of restriction and constriction physiologically and making a higher heart rate. So yep. we, we got all the way to the end and mentioned good hearts. So I'm glad we, I'm glad we did that. That was good. Makes I, I don't know if we answered any questions in this episode. Um, but oh, I hope we asked what conversation we asked what devices we would buy and we said heart rate straps and and watches that is true 
We mentioned Whoop a couple of times. We did. Whoops. We did not weirdly mention Aura Ring, which seems to be the new hotness. It's funny you say that because their sleep temperature. I think, I think that's actually one of the more accurate metrics. It could be one of the more inaccurate. I don't remember. But they're pretty good. Aura is good at sleep. Like it's pretty good at sleep. But in working with that in an operational setting, it was kind of didn't work super great because people didn't want to work out with it. They couldn't go on missions with it. Like, so you lose a lot, but if you, pro- if you prescribe it just for sleep, I think it's worthwhile. I don't know. I've never really used one. I know there's been some studies in the technical environment using them. There seems to be hints of promise there, but I can't really speak to it with any kind of experience or authority. I guess to summarize the episode, I would say that like wearable technology is great. It, it provides an objective veneer over a depth of information that you could probably collect subjectively if you took the time and the effort to do it. Yeah. And I think we talked about this before we started recording, but it's worth emphasizing that objective data, like numbers from devices, is not inherently more valid or more reliable than subjective data like questionnaires asking athletes how they feel. Like sometimes, even though that feels hokey, that subjective data, like RPE or whatever it is, is just as valid, if not more valid and more reliable than the objective data. It's also free. It is. All right. Thanks for listening. That's it. See you next time.